I'm Michelle. And I'm Lucy. Welcome to Tudoriferous, the biographical podcast that examined lives in the Tudor era. And today, Bishop Fox. I'm glad you got that one because I remember finding it hard to say. (laughs) (laughs) Every time I had to say Foxy's something or other. Foxes. Foxes. (laughs) (laughs) It just keeps on going. Sort of like banana na 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 na. That's out of Terry Pratchett. Ah. Nanny Og is trying to find out how to stop spelling banana na 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 na. <laughs> yeah. I must read those sometime. Anyway, Bishop Fox, yes. Bishop Fox, yes. But first. But first. Oh, wait. You know what we do have to do? We have to thank our new tutor, Roses. Oh, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. All over the place today. Yeah, we've got a few new ones. We have Joanne Spick, Quinn Campagna, and Nom. <laughs> nom, nom, nom. Thank you, thank you so much. So much. It's really appreciated. Yes, thank you. We're clocking up quite a number now. Yeah, it's we're getting more, more people in our community. Mm. It's awesome. Right, are you ready? No. Tough. <laughs> I haven't reviewed. I have not had a chance to listen. I have been busy making my bathroom beautiful and usable again. <laughs> but well, it's so pretty. I went with sea foam on the wall. It's such a gorgeous green. All right. Greeny blue. Yeah. We went for greeny blue and we both chose it out of loads. And then when I painted it, we neither of us liked it. <laughs> oh, I love it mine. A, it was a. It's just you know, it doesn't it only has to be slightly off, doesn't off. it? To yes. be completely off. Yeah, too much yellow. Yeah, neither of us like it. Oh, I love mine. I did all of the walls white, like crystal white, except for the one feature wall. And now I've got to start putting in all the fancy stuff. I got to redo cabinets and. Because they don't match. They're, they were all avocado green from the 60s. Mm, lovely. <laughs> They're hideous. <laughs> oh, that takes me back. <laughs> yeah. So I need to replace all of those, like the toilet, the tub, the sink. But at the moment, we were just trying to make it so we could still use the bathroom. Mm. That's our focus. Mm. So, yeah. You can't put it off forever. <laughs> I know. I keep trying. <laughs> okay. Okay. Francis, Francis Lovell. The dog. <laughs> How old was Francis' mother when he was born? That's not him. <laughs> when he was born, how old was his mum? Fifteen? <laughs> oh, fourteen. Fourteen. Yes. I remembered her being not as young as Margaret Beaufort, no, but very not close. Not far off. Yeah. Number two, following... Yeah, no, this is sort of about him. <laughs> You've got me paranoid now. Following King Edward IV and the Earl of Warwick, who was Francis's third warder? We've done an episode on him. <laughs> You've done an episode on him. Stanley? No, much no. much longer, much much longer ago than that. Oh, jeez! Right back at the beginning. William Stanley. I keep wanting to say Stanley. I don't know. John de la Pole. John de la Pole. The boring one. The really boring one. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I don't remember him. To whom? Oh. 
Well, yeah, this is about him. <laughs> I'm getting zero of zero so far. Well, every time I start to read, I think, oh, God, this one's not about him. <laughs> to whom did Henry VII give Minster Lovell Hall following Francis's attender? Oh, jeez. I don't know that either. He came just before John de la Pole. <laughs> William de la Pole. <laughs> no, no, in our, in our, in our podcast. I had him swinging through in chandeliers. You had him falling his own over his own feet. Jasper Tudor. What was? Why was Francis's inclusion in Richard III's coronation different from all the other participants? I don't know that one either. That's the trouble. We do, we record these things and then we go back and research our own person and, then and the, the bit you've recorded is completely out of your head it's because he wasn't there for political reasons he was there as friend of the king oh that's the only reason he was there right and who number five who thwarted francis's attempt to kill henry in york it was the mayor of york no <laughs> I don't know that one either. Henry Percy. Henry the Percy. The Duke of Northumberland. Zero yeah. of five. I've done <laughs> fantastic. This is why I love these quizzes. It's such an uplifting, you know, it gives your ego a boost. I must admit, I don't remember much about Francis Lovell and I, I did this episode. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. He was sadly forgettable. That's what we discovered about very. him. Very. Hmm. He he sort of seemed to be following along rather than being an actor on his own. That's what I do remember, being disappointed because I thought he was going to be one of the great conspirators and he just wasn't. Well, he acted, but he acted for one thing only. He wanted to kill the king, revenge his friend, and then... And then yeah, that's it. Then put his feet up, drink his cocoa. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, you're off duty now. Well, you're on duty. You're off duty now. I hate the quizzes. <laughs> Come with me, if you will. Your family has been ill with the sweating sickness, and you vowed to make a pilgrimage to Canterbury to thank Thomas Beckett for interceding on your family's behalf and saving all but your father. You are so grateful that yourself, your wife, and all six of your children have come through the terrifying time. Your group is stopping for prayers and have chosen the common pilgrimage site and stopping point of Winchester Cathedral. You finally see it in view and are astounded at its magnificence. You have seen nothing like it. You're from a small village. Nothing is that big. The monastery down the road isn't that grand. As you enter, you see scaffolds. Off in what you learn is the Lady Chapel. They are enlarging the stained glass window. It is a kaleidoscope of brilliant colors. You kneel to pray and give thanks. After a lengthy time praying, you stand and see a very, very old cleric. He's being led by a younger man and having the construction explained to him. Surprised, you hear the elderly man ask for changes. The deferential treatment he is being shown makes you ask one of the young apprentices who he is. Well, sir... That is the Bishop of Winchester, Lord Privy Seal. 
Too odd to approach him, you stare, never imagining you would be in the presence of a man with so much power and reputation, the famous Bishop Fox. Ooh. Ooh. Mind you, he always looked old, didn't he? Very gaunt. <laughs> he did. Very he was gaunt. an aesthetic. <laughs> which is funny. You would think that an aesthetic would solely dictate themselves to the church, but he decided to split his time. Hmm. Oh, I haven't been to Winchester Cathedral for years, but I do remember it's very beautiful. The stained glass window in Lady Chapel was apparently his and dictated on his design when he had already lost his sight. Oh. So figure that one out. <laughs> he must have known what he wanted from a long time back, I suppose. Yes, but how do you describe it and then have somebody describe to you what they're making and be sure that you're getting what you had originally <laughs> thought? Oh, man, if you want a fun game to play with your friends and just be absolutely ridiculous, print off a bunch of random basic images off the internet. Have them sit back to back, one with a drawing pad and one with the picture. Have one describe the picture and the other person draw it and compare it at the end. Okay. <laughs> they are horrifying. <laughs> that is a heck of a lot of fun at a party. <laughs> okay. I bear hey. that in mind. <laughs> Richard Fox. Oh, boy. I had no idea just how much material there was going to be to go through to get Richard Fox. It was fantastic. So much has come down through history. Even then, the beginning of his life is sketchy. So you might be a little disappointed at the beginning, but we really get into it as we get going. I suppose if nobody knows that he's going to be famous, who's Who's going to bother writing up about his, you know, when he cut his first teeth? Or... Yes. Not only that, as he gets older, the only way we have an idea of how or when he was born or where he was born is his own really vague recollections of his childhood. We are guessing at his age by his own possibly dementia starting guess at his age. Oh, I must be yeah. about 70. Hmm. And we've gone backwards from there to give a date. <laughs> we honestly don't have any real idea of how old he is. And of course, the records from the parish, which would have been in the church, got destroyed. So we definitely don't have right. a date of his baptism or anything. What we can say is that Richard Fox was born. <laughs> right, okay. Take that one off. In the village of Ropsley in the county of Lincolnshire. Did I say that right? Yeah, Lincolnshire. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know they're all a bit weird, but that one's fine. <laughs> Apparently the house still stands, but it's not open to the public because it's privately owned. So you could actually go see the house where he was born, supposedly. The parish church where he was baptized also still exists. We know that he was baptized there. We just don't know when. You may have to go there and take pictures for me. Just so you can say one of us have been there. Lincolnshire's miles away. It's right over the other side of the country. Your other side of the country isn't as far as the other side of Canada, and I've done that six times. Yeah, well. How many hours is it? Canadians don't do kilometers. We say, oh, it's about four hours away. Uh, it's probably about that, yeah. Really? That's where my parents are, is that oh. distance from me? <laughs> It's cold over that side of the country. <laughs> but, uh, that's a two-day trip. 
You go out there, you say hi, you spend the night, you come home the next day. Oh, sounds exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, no, I, I must admit, I did Lord Dogney's house. Nice. Last week, um, which wasn't four hours away. It's about 20 minutes away. <laughs> um, beautiful. Stunningly beautiful. Oh. If anyone's in Somerset, go to Barrington Court. It is gorgeous. Sadly, it was completed in the 1560s. So our Lord Dobney, they say Dabney oh. in National Trust. Um, they didn't know who I was talking about. Oh, <laughs> but he didn't live there. Oh. But he lived in the area, but not in that house. So his because... children or his hmm. yeah, children, children, yeah. grandchildren. Yeah, I talked to them for quite a while before they said, "Do you mean Dabney?" Oh, <laughs> so, I don't know. I've never heard it spoken. I don't think it's got a U after it. <laughs> you daub things. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. Anyway, anyone. Anyone in Somerset, go to Montacute House, Ford Abbey, and Barrington Court. Okay. Three gorgeous places, gorgeous Tudor places. Okay. Oh, man. <laughs> I need to live there because there's no way I could see everything in one trip. It's just impossible. Not unless the trip was a year long. Mm. His parents were Thomas and Helena Fox. We do not know the exact year, but he must have been born between 1446 and 1448. Must have. <laughs> we only have this possible date from Fox himself. So in 1527, he tells us that he was born about 79 years earlier. So it's a good age. It is a good age. And he continues mm. after that, too. All right. Yeah. <laughs> he comes from minor landowners. The family would not have been wealthy, but they would not have been poor either. They wouldn't have been landed titled. They are very much commoners. They just fell into the fact that they actually had land that they could farm themselves. His mother must have died at some point in the next 20 years, as his father was remarried in 1465, and that would have been uber scandalous. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and it happens. Does it? Death, I mean, oh. not, not, not oh. bigamy. <laughs> We haven't come across bigamy yet. What am I missing? <laughs> he had one brother and two sisters. We don't have the birth order, but if we go with the way society was at the time, we can safely assume that his brother was the eldest because usually it was the younger sons that were encouraged to enter the church since they mm. had nothing to inherit. We have no records of his early education, but we do know that he must have gone to both primary and grammar school or he would not have been allowed to attend university. Right. It's hard to say where he first studied. Historians attribute his attendance by looking at the colleges he was patronizing and supporting later in life. So he may have attended Magdalen College in Oxford or Pembroke College <laughs> in Cambridge. I'm going to do it again, I'm afraid. In Oxford, Magdalen is pronounced Maudlin. That's Maudlin? I've always wondered! <laughs> Because when you look up Oxford, Maudlin doesn't show up anywhere. No, it's Magdalene, it's Maudlin. Only in Oxford. Is Pembroke Pembroke? Pembroke's Pembroke. Okay, yes. good. <laughs> I'll get one of these right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think most people who don't who haven't lived in Oxford or gone to Oxford might not know about Magdalene and Maudlin. 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 Yeah. How does that shift? Maybe that's I... the original way they pronounced it. I wonder if it's one of these upper class, you know, um, Georgiana and her lo load of people who, uh, the Duchess. Duchess. They, 
had a special way of talking. Really? Georgina? It's not Georgina, how we pronounce it over here? Everybody else would say Georgina or Georgiana, but no, she was Georgiana because they had a, the upper class at that time had a special oh. special way of, a special lingo. And oh, I wonder did... if this maudlin came from rather posh that. Oxford students. Gotcha. <laughs> saying, well, we're not going to say Magdalene, we're going to say maudlin. Maudlin. <laughs> okay. Maybe it was Magdalene and it slowly mm. got changed. I don't know. Hmm. Anyway. He was master of Pembroke from 1507 to 1518, but he was also appointed a visitor from Magdalen. It's a strange title, but it actually means he would be the investigator if a crisis occurred. Oh, really? Yeah, visitor was investigator. Oh, yeah, you can see the link. Mm-hmm. Later, when he had more power, he also appointed people to positions in Magdalen College. It is believed that he earned his actual Bachelor of Canon Laws at a French university by 1477 due to his presence in France and the fact that he had his bachelor's by 1477. Mm. So he couldn't have gotten it here, but he was in France, so he had to have attended a French university. Right. A lot of it is guesswork. We know you have it. A lot of people did study abroad, didn't they? Yes, they did. It was quite popular for the upper classes... It's a surprise for a commoner because mm. the cost was quite yeah, extreme. How could he afford it? Patrons. Many, many ah. patrons. Although we don't have a list. We just know that it existed. <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons we know about his bachelor's was because he was finally ordained as an alkalite in the Salisbury Diocese in 1477, which would have required the bachelor's degree. And he was matriculated in the University of Louvain in the graduate facility of canon law in 1479, which would also have required his bachelor's. Right. That's the first record we have is at the University mm -hmm. of Louvain in France. So people must have recognized him as a bright lad then. Well, Flanders. Yes. Mm. He was already well known to be quite intelligent from the people he worked for because he did have to hold down a job while he was doing this as well. The University of Louvain, I apologize, it's actually in Flanders, not in France. Flanders in 1479 in the early 80s was in quite a bit of disarray politically. Wasn't it just? Yes. <laughs> and he may have had to flee before he earned his advanced degree, what we would call a master's. None of the historians call it a master's, but I think that's the equivalent now. Yeah. They just probably. called it an advanced degree. By 1482, we find Fox in the University of Paris, where he earns his doctorate in canon law, so he had to have received his master's somewhere prior to this. And since it's not at record in Paris, it would have been a previous university. Hmm. What is so frustrating is that a biographer, Thomas Greenway, who was the president of Corpus Christi College, we'll discuss that college later, in the 1560s claims that Fox was in France in exile, fleeing King Richard III, but doesn't tell us why or where. Um, well, most people, well, I don't know. Yeah, I was about to say, generally there's one reason for fleeing Richard, and that's you think he's killed the princes and you don't want to be part of it, I suppose. But fleeing sounds fleeing more like I've done something wrong mm. 
Or maybe one of his patrons did something wrong and he thinks he was just going to be caught in that net. We Unless have... he was fleeing to Henry rather than away from Richard. Not yet. Not oh, no. Yet. No, no, not yet. No. No. Hmm? So, yeah. That's annoying. Very annoying. <laughs> I went through everything I could find and found absolutely nothing saying, like, even giving us the idea that Thomas had found something. He doesn't mm. tell us that he read in a record or he spoke to Fox. Nothing. He just puts it out there. Mm. Really frustrating. I should mention that there was a John Fox on the council of Edward the Force Court, which means he might have been somebody that had gone against Richard III. And some historians claim that he was the source of Fox's career. But other historians point out how common the last name was, and there is absolutely no evidence anywhere of a relationship or that the counselor did anything to help Fox. And Fox was in France. He wasn't in England. Probably not then. No, I'm going to go with no, even though mm. there's three or four that say, oh, no, 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 this was this guy. I'm like, yeah, give me, give me proof. Give me something mm. here. Give me anything, even a reference to a document. I would say, okay, they had a document. We don't have it now, but at least then they had proof. Nothing. It seems to be just speculation. The speculation continues in that he had income to pursue his education. And the speculation was he was perhaps a legal clerk. You can do that with your first degree. You can start working as a legal clerk or a secretary. It would make sense. His family wasn't wealthy. He, a legal secretary could not afford to pay for entire education or his upkeep. upkeep. <laughs> but he's got patrons as well, so. Yes, we know he has patrons, but we don't know who. We don't know how much they paid. We don't know why. Hmm. So the beginning of his life is really, really frustrating. And then all of a sudden you get this plethora <laughs> of information just hits you. Regardless of who helped him in his career, Fox was appointed the canon of Salisbury Cathedral, prebendary of Bishopston in Wiltshire in 1482. And both of those were sinecures. So he had to have had a patron that was fairly well off in power in order to provide him with a sinecure. Yeah, and to put in a good word for him. Yes. Hmm. Nobody offers us sinecures. No, I would love a sinecure. Yeah. If anyone out there's got a sinecure, yeah. <laughs> can we have one, please? Yes, please. <laughs> then we'll spend all our time doing this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he was appointed as the vicar of the parish of St. Dunstan. Hi, Allie. <laughs> <laughs> Allie's favorite priest from Rex Factor. This is in Stephanie in London in 1484. But... We're getting close. Fox then fled to France and was with our Henry when Richard III ordered the living to be given to someone else. But Fox somehow still got it. So he he's now fled to Henry. Hmm. Richard, in retaliation, has said, no, he doesn't get that sinecure. Goes to somebody else. But and he whoever, gets it. He gets it anyway. So whoever his patron was had enough power to tell the new king no. Well, anybody who's very knowledgeable about Richard's reign, who is there out there that could could do that? Hmm, I that's don't... going to need some thinking about. 
Yes, especially when these kind of positions were chosen by the court. They were not chosen by the church. This is something that's different in England than anywhere else. Mm. A lot of these people, they may have been required to have a certain amount of education in certain things, but it wasn't necessarily churchmen putting them in those positions. Oh, I wonder if it was Francis. He might have said, oh, but I like him. Go on. Maybe. Go on, Richard. Richard thought, well, I can't deny you anything. You're my bestest friend. (laughs) (laughs) The person we don't know anything, or I don't know anything about. (laughs) Nobody knows anything about him. (laughs) Yeah, you said you had a plethora. I didn't have a plethora. (laughs) Oh, yes. At the beginning, I was frustrated. There were so many books, and you go to uh, Corpus Christi College, Balliol College, there are a ton of his letters still available, so you can see his own handwriting and everything. But his early life is just this black hole of Mm. speculation, a few snippets to give you an idea of the timeline, but not enough to actually give you any proper detail. But it's not as if he's done anything so far to be ashamed of that he'd want to keep quiet about, is it? I mean, he seems to have... Except for the fleeing in... from Richard. Yeah, well, that's that's a tick in, the, tick in the Henry column, though, isn't it? Very true. Yeah. Hmm? Don't know. Maybe they maybe did do something. I don't know. Sounds unlikely. Yeah. There, there is a hint that I picked up. I'm not sure if this is... This could be me weaving something out of whole cloth. Fox's loyalties at this point are not as crystal clear as you would think. Okay, he's fled Richard, so he's with Henry. I don't think so. All of his appointments prior to joining Henry were either in relation to the Yorkists, specifically the Yorks, but even stronger relations with the Woodvilles, yeah. which may yeah, have caused quite him a to few, flee. Well, there's quite a few Yorkists, well, a lot of Yorkists out there with Henry. I suppose there's, there's a few Woodvilles out there with them as well, aren't there? Yes, there are. Hmm. When we start seeing Fox getting positions, being close to the Woodvilles was expected. Edward was a king, but aligning with the Woodvilles could be a bit sketchy. They were not liked, Hmm. but they seemed pretty darn secure. There was a faction that was extremely anti-Woodville, and Fox could have chosen to agree to other appointments going against them or even refuse some that were directly related to the Woodvilles. But I guess there's absolutely no way to know what was about to happen. People would just assume that they've had tons of children. Mm -hmm. They've got two boys. This is going to be a continuing family. Mm. If he had chosen the side of the Woodvilles, I think that that would make sense as to why he had to flee Richard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because Richard was very anti-Woodvilles. Hmm. We are now in 1485, the critical year. (laughs) Fox ends up, I'm going to call him Fox from now on because there's quite a few Richards. And it started getting confusing in my own head. Fox ends up meeting with Henry Tudor when Henry was at the court of Charles VIII in France. This is when they meet. Henry and Richard obviously hit it off right away because Fox was almost immediately, like within a couple of days, working for Henry in the critical negotiations. He chose, Mm. Henry chose, I don't know if you just realize this man's brilliant. You know, you meet those people and you're just like, ah, how am I not like that? Yes, because he's already got people that have been with him 
for a while, wasn't he? Yes. So, yeah, and he chooses on... somebody brand new. Mm. Yeah. He also, at this time, became Henry's private secretary. Mm. That's a very personal, intimate position. You're with them a lot. We also see the trust because when Henry had to leave to prepare for the invasion, it was Fox Henry left behind to continue to negotiate for support for Henry from Charles. And Fox succeeded. Hmm. So he's already proven his worth and obviously is trustworthy. It's just how do those conversations end up that way? How do you get from I've never met you before to a week later, hey, I need you to negotiate the most critical portion of my lifetime ever? He must just exude confidence and diplomacy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I did find something funny here. Author Clayton Drees claims that some of the Norman mercenaries found for the invasion were actually pulled from jails. And I'd really like to know if they were prisoners or jailers. <laughs> right. <laughs> I assumed prisoners when you said that, but yeah. I... Well, then who's guarding the prisoners? <laughs> and why are you taking them out of jails? I was thinking that Charles was like, I really need to get these guys out of here. Here, your condition for release is that you have to be a mercenary and go in this invasion and get out of my country. Yeah, actually, it works really well, doesn't it? You don't yeah. have to pay for all those prisoners. You've shunted nope. them off to a different country. That's brilliant. Yes, it really <laughs> is. I loved this. <laughs> Richard was with Henry at Bosworth as an advisor and secretary, not a combatant. He and two others were actually watching on the field, praying for Henry and his forces during the entire battle. Oh, how useful. Yeah, maybe that's why they won. Yes. To understand Richard from here on, we now have, we have now hit that, oh my goodness, I've got 11 billion things to read. We need to understand a little bit about the Catholic faith in medieval times that may be alien to us now. This means I'm about to make another jump through another set of theological mental hoops, mm -hmm. like we love to do for some <laughs> reason. Okay, so there is a thing called the Pauline body of Christ theme. This is in reference to the Adam, the first man, and Christ parallel. Adam was the first Adam, who through him was the head of the fall of man, while Jesus is the last Adam, restoring man to likeness of heavenly man. Adam fell, Jesus brought us back. Okay. So this is known as the Adam-Christ parallel. The father or the head of the family or nation is fulfilling a role that includes all of man, this is a quote, by the way, or in a stricter interpretation, all of Christianity. In the medieval religious thought, the Roman Catholic Church is the body and all were members of the mystical body of Christ, end quote. To ensure that this body remained whole and strong, all of the individuals within the body had to put aside their individual needs, wants, desires, and aims in order to serve the body of Christ, all of Catholicism in this case. They don't mean the Greek Orthodox Church. It was very clear <laughs> we're talking about Catholicism here. Yeah, For all, by this point, they'd already said that the Greek Orthodox, Orthodox Church was uh, heretical, Heresy. I think. Yeah. And had taken all their relics. Yes. <laughs> For Jamie of Totalis Rankium, this thought is still in pop culture. From Spock saying, 
Quote, logic clearly dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. End quote. And Kirk replying, quote, or the one. End quote. And that's from The Wrath of Khan, if anybody wants to go look it up. No. (laughs) (laughs) Jamie from Totalis Rankium is a huge Star Trek fan. Hmm. And so am I and my mom. (laughs) I could go much, much further into this thought process, but I'm really hoping Pontifax one day takes this on. When it says about a body, is it thinking of of a metaphor of a human body with the head and... Yes, and everybody and in the body. No, I was going to say because you have the body politic around this time as well, don't you? That ah, that's where this comes from. The right. body politic is actually pulled from the Pauline body of Christ theme, right? Ah. And we seem to get that through Richard quite a bit. I can't tell you if that's the reason it's that way everywhere, but he refers to it quite yeah. often. What we need to know out of all that is that Bishop Fox believed this with his entire being. 100%. Everybody must give up. Everybody must sacrifice. Everybody must work hard to ensure the entire body of the church and the body of Christ is going to be successful and survive and thrive. Where he goes a little differently is he didn't keep this view strictly to the church. He applied the exact same thought to the country of England, not Henry, the country of England. The king, after all, ruled by grace of God. He's anointed by the church. The king is there to serve Christ on earth. And this is not him thinking that that's quite a very medieval point of view. It has been asserted that the mystical body of Christ was adapted by the medieval mind into the body politic, but it's hard to see where that body politic ends up being used for the first time. It just sort of seeps into the government rather than one person saying 100% it's the body politic and they're, they're equal. The body politic also only works through a monarchy. monarchy. Mm, Republics need, are not the, the body politic. You need the head. Yeah. The king quite literally rules. My husband's going to hate that. He doesn't like it when you say quite literally (laughs) or literally at all. And if you really want to take him off, use legitimately. (laughs) (laughs) I love it when people say literally and they don't mean literally at all. (laughs) No, that's not the meaning. Yeah, I heard on the radio some talking about making a, a ring road around a city and saying that this this road would literally eat up traffic. I thought, great. Sounds wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> the poor people. <laughs> yeah, it it's changing its own meaning. It's become a word of emphasis rather than mm. a word of meaning. But Jason doesn't like that change. <laughs> no, no, I can understand that. The king ruled and maintained good order in the name of God. That's why he's anointed. Fox would have seen his role in government of the kingdom as an extension of his Catholic duty to God. You're still serving God because you're serving somebody anointed by God. Yeah. And self-sacrifice for the good of, of all was the ultimate sacrifice for the church. We know he thought and believed this in two very prominent statements. One is his chosen symbol, which is really, really creepy. It's called a Volunian pelican. Oh, 
yes. Is it the one where she's bitten her own chest? Yes. Yes. It's that's an al- al- alchemical symbol as well. Is it? Yes. It's a pelican. For anybody who doesn't know this, it is a pelican wounding itself to feed its babies with its own flesh and blood. Mm. Self-sacrifice for the better good. And that's what he chooses as his emblem. Ugh. Really creepy. And I don't think I I did go looking. There's no such thing as a pelican that anybody knows has ever done this. No, there's I know in alchemy there's a special sort of flask and the neck comes up and then bends over and sort of almost touches the body of it again. And that's called a pelican oh. flask. And you'll see on one of Elizabeth's Queen Elizabeth's um, paintings that there's a pelican on that, and that's to do with her interest in alchemy, yeah. Ah, Mm. I love this. We're now seeing actual symbols. Yes. Rather than just the dog, the hare, the boar. (laughs) This one has an actual meaning behind it. Hmm. But, yeah, I wonder whether he had it everywhere, you know, on his pillows and... On his breakfast bowl and everything. He did eventually. He doesn't have it now because he is in no way in a position to actually earn mm. or be entitled to a symbol. But this is obviously in his brain. And later when we talk about the Corpus Christi College that he fa- founded, um, he called it the body of Christ in English. Yeah. I was so just thinking Corpus Christi is something quite similar. If- yes. It is exactly the Latin of the body of Christ. No, I think it's similar to the giving up your body for the greater good. Yes. Mm. So he is 100% in this. On a completely different note, I came across something that rather surprised me, and I wanted to put this in. When he was made bishop, historian Clayton Drees, again, he he was the easiest book to read. Thank (laughs) you very much for writing that book. He says, quote, he had to demonstrate enough income to qualify for ordination into the major orders, end quote. I didn't realize the churchmen had to have some sort of income outside of the church in order to become a bishop or a cardinal. Is that actually to pay to get to get in, to pay for the actual office? No, it's more in prestige. Because you shouldn't do that, because that's simony, isn't it? Yes. But it was done. It was prestige. Right. You weren't supposed to keep get all of your income from the church office. So you were expected, since you have to uphold your own elegance and all the people you were supposed to surround yourself with, had to pull that income from somewhere else because it wouldn't necessarily be given to you by the bishopric. Mm. But Mm. weird. So you could be fully capable, but if you didn't have the money, you weren't going to make it. But I guess if you were fully capable, you would have found those. You would have found the money. Found the money. Yeah. It, it was very strange. And I started wondering if they do that now, but I don't think they do. I've, I have never heard of a bishop or a cardinal having outside work. I don't know. I wouldn't have thought so. I don't know either. Mm. I must have been naive, but I thought you worked your way up for the lower orders being a good churchman and administrator, and you got to be there. I didn't mm. know you had to be wealthy, too. No wonder all of the cardinals we have discussed have had so many land holdings. Yeah. Or useful relatives. Yes. (laughs) Borgia. (laughs) Borgia, Sforza, (laughs) Medici. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All of the above. Shortly after Bosworth, Fox became the canon of Hereford Cathedral. 
then canon Lovely. of St. Paul's, nice. and then was ordained as a subdeacon in the major orders in the Diocese of Lincoln. So he would have been in his late 30s by now. From here on, Fox's life, he would hold two posts, one secular and political for Henry, and the other was ecclesiastic. I was just thinking, it shows that he didn't have enough to do in either of them, did he? If he could have managed to do both. No, not at all. The papal emissary noted that Fox was, quote, all-powerful, unquote, with Henry. Though I found that Morton, later Cardinal Morton, seemed to be equally powerful and possibly more so, since he gained a cardinalship from Henry while Fox only became a bishop. Yeah, I keep reading that Bray is top dog. <laughs> yes, they're all top dog. I honestly think the biographers end up thinking that the person they're working on is their favorite. I think so. We've, yeah. I mean, we found that, haven't we, that... You start reading about somebody and you get embroiled in their lives. And Yes, yeah. especially when you've got personal letters from them and you can see how they wrote. And yeah, hmm. it's just a little more personal. Fox was busy. He was issuing writs and proclamations to secure Henry's crown. He was his personal secretary. He attended him at all times and was with him on the council. Fox did gain positions through his closeness to Henry. Ecclesiastically, he was made canon of Hereford Cathedral, prebendary of Nonington. I love that word. <laughs> Don't know where it is, Nonington. Never heard of it. Canon of St. Paul's. While secular appointments were also handed to him, keeper of the exchange. And one position that I felt perhaps was not inappropriate, but definitely incongruous, keeper of the game park at Windsor. <laughs> Random. <laughs> We will not go through a list of all of the ecclesiastic positions he gained and traded. There's another thing. I remember listening to Pontifax and them saying you couldn't be a bishop one place and then move to become a bishop in another place. He's doing that all over here. Hmm. And he's trading it. He's trading it. So you trade the lower income one for one of greater wealth and income. And do you swap with the other person or do you... I mean, who are you trading with? The the, the king or, or the... Oh, okay. So the bishopric that you want, the mm. bishop there has died. Right. So you take that one, somebody below you takes the next one up, and it's like a ladder. Right, okay. Everybody moves up one rung. But I was positive that Pontifex said that wasn't allowed. A lot of things seemed to be allowed under Henry that weren't allowed most of the time. And the church. The Pope doesn't tell people they can't. Yeah, yeah, I can see no reason why you shouldn't. I mean, an ecclesiastical reason. I don't know. I'm trying to think what happens now. And I'm sure people say, yeah, these days that they were bishop of something or other and now they're bishop of yes. Bath and Wales or whatever. Yeah. Hmm. Pontifex. <laughs> <laughs> or somebody who's listening to Pontifex and can remember that episode. I think they mentioned it on more than one. We will not go through a list of all the positions he held. It would fill a book and be extremely tedious. So I didn't want to go into that. <laughs> we can simply say that Fox continued to rise through positions that would gain him more money. If a position wasn't lucrative enough, he would always have an eye out for the next one up that was going to be more money in his pocket. His bishopric is one I am going to discuss since it is from here on that he is now known as Bishop Fox. He was appointed Bishop of Exeter in 1486, a year after Bosworth. 
Right. I was beginning to wonder because there is a Bishop Fox school in Taunton. And I thought we've been all over the place, but we've not been anywhere near Taunton yet. So we're getting closer. Yes. And he founded that school. Mm. We will talk about it. When he became the bishop, he built a stone gable or covered porch over the south door of St. Peter's Parish in Ropsley, his hometown. We think it's his own architectural design. We do find his architectural designs. He was interested in architecture and apparently was quite good at it because some of his designs became reality and they haven't fallen down. Yeah, and I found the same with Bray because in some places he he's described as an architect and other places they so say... Fox. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and other places they say he's not really an architect. He, you know, had ideas about what he wanted, which is not quite ah. the same as... No, he did... Well, we won't go into Bray. We're doing that next time, but... With Fox, it was quite physical architecture mm. with his designs. This will most likely be the first, we think it's the first, of numerous architectural designs by Fox that were then built to his specifications. So we know that he did do the designs and that they were able to be carried out. Although there are a few where they mention that his design in stone wouldn't have worked. It was too heavy, so they had to switch it up to wood. Right. So he wasn't perfect at it, (laughs) but the engineers could figure that out. Yeah, I mean, he is also a bishop and a politician. Yes. (laughs) Once Fox is in a position of power, we see Fox's dedication to his family and his actions. He was very fond of nepotism. (laughs) He appointed one nephew as a fellow at the Corpus Christi College when he finds that. Founded it? Can Mm -hmm. you find it? No, founded. (laughs) Founded it. Another nephew was given numerous paid and influential posts in the church. Another nephew were provided appointments in the court. And Fox provided livings for his niece's husbands as well. So he was very much into the next generation. I'm going to take care of it. Mm. Mind you, at least it was literally, literally, nepotism, (laughs) not like Borgia. (laughs) His nepotism extended to children of his own. Yes. No, Mm. he did not have any children. Right. We also don't find any mention of him leaving out any of his family and his benefices. We do find a few mentions of people saying he'll help everyone in his family. So, <laughs> yeah. Fox was in Henry's company almost continually, joining him on progress and at each resident. He would preside or at least be in attendance at almost all royal christenings, weddings, and of course funerals. He originally, and for quite a bit of his life, seems to be filling the position of royal priest, even though there is a royal chaplain. Hmm. When Fox was away from the royal family, it was almost always due to him being chosen as an emissary or diplomat. The king was choosing him to leave him. Other than that, he was with the king all the time. The first one was that he was sent to Scotland after Bosworth to renew a truce with King James III of Scotland. So he's in Scotland. Hmm. In 1487, he gained yet another bishopric, that of Exeter, and was made keeper of the Privy Seal now. It's a top job. Yeah, Hmm. the top honor in court. Everything that the council approves has to go through him to be sealed. Right, yeah. And he can deny that. They have a veto power, which I didn't realize they actually did. Hmm. 
It's a lack of democracy there, isn't it? If you've got one person who just yeah. says no, no, no. Well, it wasn't really like democracy it. anyway. No. Yeah. But still, being able to yeah. veto it, it's one of the reasons, if if I remember correctly, for Henry VIII, one of his counselors finds a way to bypass the Lord Privy Seal who was being an impediment. Sounds like the sort of thing Cromwell would do. I'm pretty sure it was Cromwell. Mm. It appears in the records that Fox's focus was, at this point, much more political than ecclesiastical. He doesn't even visit some of his ecclesiastic appointments. So he's the Bishop of Exeter. When would he have time? (laughs) He Mm. wouldn't. He really wouldn't. Yeah, he's the Bishop of Exeter and actually never stepped foot in Exeter. Really? Or that sea, yeah. Doesn't even get there. Lovely cathedral. But it isn't unusual. Mm. Apparently all over Europe, it was almost an expected behavior. You were a bishop, but you would appoint people to take care of it. Or in some cases you didn't. You let it fall and just kept all the money because now you don't have to pay people to take care of it. He was not like that. He was very assiduous in ensuring that he did put men in place to run the seas both efficiently and benevolently, which is unusual. He wanted to make sure that his parishioners were taken care of. That's an unusual thing to find in a bishop. Yeah, I suppose if he was interested in you know, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Yes. That's yeah, fits in. Yes. Mm. Fox was with Henry waiting in the Midland at Newark while the army went to face Lambert Simnel. Okay. He seems to be absolutely everywhere. If it happened, he was there. It is hard to say if this battle affected Henry, but he sent Fox with Sir Richard Edgecombe back to James III to negotiate a more permanent treaty. Mm-hmm. We need to do a cameo on Edgecombe. Yes, we do. We don't have enough, <laughs> I think, to be able to actually do an episode. No. But he pops up everywhere. He does. Him in his hat. Yes. They were sort of successful in that they managed a seven-year non-aggression pact. Not quite a treaty. And definitely not a permanent, oh, forever we will be. No, James was like, I'll give you seven years. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I have other things to do. (laughs) Henry still wanted more and sent them back. And this astonished me. We have not covered this. And I was just jaw dropped. The treaty was supposed to be a marriage between James III and Elizabeth Woodville, the mother of the queen. Wow. The dowager queen. Yeah. I've not come across that before either. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, there we go. I I was just, wow. Mm. And in this treaty also, in the future, it would be arranged a marriage, because Prince James is very, very young, that Prince James, later James IV, and one of Elizabeth of York's sisters would be married in this treaty. It's Elizabeth of York. Oh, Elizabeth of York's sisters, yeah. It's yeah, Elizabeth it's Woodville. Roughly the same age. as She's younger than James III. Yeah, no, I was just wondering if she's anybody now. I don't think so. She's pretty. Yeah. It'll get her out of the way so he doesn't have to deal with the mother-in-law. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just surprised that James would, would think it was an acceptable choice. He didn't. Mm. <laughs> it yeah, didn't go enough. through. <laughs> well, it did. The treaty was confirmed by Scotland and received at Westminster, but James III died in an uprising before. Yeah, I was wondering. I thought we were about that time, yes. Yes. But wow, you're going to marry off your mother-in-law to the King of Scotland, and we have not found that. 
and he is your natural enemy. So this is almost like an archetypal mother-in-law joke, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Who do you get rid of your mother-in-law to? Your worst enemy. Yes. <laughs> but wow. And I found it because it's in Fox's papers in his records. And it was approved, both in Scotland and England. Mm. We need to do somebody from Scotland because it's a sort of bit of a blank. Yes. At the moment. Uh, have to find somebody. Yeah, because we, we can't do the kings because that would be stepping nope. on Rex Factor's toes. But no. maybe some of the people who negotiated with Fox? Hmm. Now I have to go through the books to find out who they were <laughs> again because I didn't write them down. He spoke with a lot of people and I don't remember actually noting the names. 1488 had Fox traveling again to Flanders with Giles Dobney. Dabney. Hey. <laughs> Dibney. <laughs> to arrange a marriage between Arthur and Catherine, though this initial negotiation came to nothing. Later that same year, Fox became head of a commission that created an adjusted system of land receivership for the crown. I'm not going to go into this. This was probably the most boring financial oh, yes, treatise I, I read. <laughs> I've come across a few things with Bray and you think, <laughs> I'm not even going to keep putting in my notebook. I just, <sighs> I just can't be bothered. <laughs> All I'm going to mention is that this sent the payments to the king's chamber, bypassing the exchequer, which had been the case since the exchequer was created. Mm. So it was a huge shift in political power away from the uh, the exchequer. Yes, the money's going straight into Henry's pockets now. Yes. Yeah. I couldn't figure out why this was so important other than it was faster. Mm. But it seemed to require an entire book to write about it. <laughs> We have Fox's handwriting in letters to other monarchs and also to colleges, Balliol College, in the bibliography of this. I've actually put in the link to it so you can see his handwriting. He had beautiful handwriting. Mm. It's not chicken scratch like Edmund mm. de la Pole's was. <laughs> it's really, really nice. We've got letters to other monarchs, the Pope, ambassadors, to schools. And while, while this handwriting is beautiful... It doesn't really give you a feel for Fox himself because they're all impersonal. Mm. They're very diplomatic language. I was really hoping to see a personal letter between him and, say, a nephew, but I didn't find one that wasn't related to church work. William Tyndale, a subject much farther in the future, we'll be eventually talking about him, was an evangelist and completed an English translation of the Bible. He tells us Fox would do almost anything, quote, including violate the holy sacraments themselves to serve his king, end quote. That gives us an idea of how other people saw him, but I don't think it's the truth because William Tyndale headed, hated everything Catholic. Yes, I was going to say there's a certain amount of bias there, isn't there? <laughs> yes, and other people seem to be more in awe of him than anything else. I don't see fear and I don't really see hatred. Mm. I didn't find hatred, no vituperation going on. Well, he wasn't one of the the new men as such, was he? No. He wasn't tainted with the whole taxes and reconnaissances and bonds bit. Yes, Yes. In fact, he was chosen to make reparations. Mm. So he might have been seen as completely apart from that and fixing it. 1490 found Fox on the move in France. Here, 
He was to speak to Charles VIII in hopes of preventing Charles's marriage to our latest Patreon episode subject, Anne of Brittany. I can feel a Patreon advert coming on. <laughs> Tudoriferous Patreon, you're very welcome. If you are a member of our Order of the Garter, you know that Fox was not successful here. But I don't think anyone would have been from Anne's episode. <laughs> it was going to happen. Henry does not seem to have held this against Fox because he still asked him to be godfather no. to Prince Henry, whom he also baptized. I love that this is where the historians have a major argument between themselves. Is this really something critical that a fight has to break out? <laughs> and this is regarding whether or not he baptized Prince Henry. Why are you focusing on this to the point, especially when they start throwing around words like perverted version of history? Yeah. <laughs> Did he? Did he not? This is where we're going to battle it out. It's so important. <laughs> Why? <laughs> they think that because he was a godfather, he may have had more of a role of influence on Henry later, but he really doesn't. <laughs> Between the people who argue that it was Thomas Beckett or Thomas a Beckett, let's, let's really rip each other apart about this. You obviously don't know how to do your own research. Like, what the hell? Let it go. It seems the smaller the thing, the more venom is behind it. <laughs> In 1492, Fox was again promoted ecclesiastically, sort of. He was transferred to the bishopric of Bath and Wells that you mentioned earlier. Mm. Exact same title, more money. Mm. He... Yeah, it's a, it's a good one, Bath and Wells. Yes. It's up there. He now has eight manors and an estate instead of just a house. Lovely. Not bad for the second son of a minor landholder. Mm. He again never stepped foot in this diocese. <laughs> <laughs> well, more fool him. Yes. Wells Cathedral is beautiful. <laughs> oh, so I, I saw pictures of it. It's quite gorgeous. He did mm. not, as far as I know, do anything architecturally there. In all his ecclesiastical holdings, though, he did appoint responsible men to manage the affairs and had visitations, so investigations into items that, of concern, which is different from some of the other bishops that I was reading about at the time. Right. Many of these historians like to throw in, unlike so-and-so. <laughs> <laughs> I was a little surprised at the appointment of somebody you might recognize the last name of, mm -hmm. a Sir Amius Pollitt. Oh, Yeah. As the bishop's steward in 1493. Hmm. I recognize his first name as well. He, I think he's on our list, isn't he? Sort of. Not for now, but later. Not for now, but not him. This oh. is the grandfather of Sir Amias Paulet, the famous jailer of Mary, Queen of Scots. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. So he pops into the story. Tis, tis a very small world. <laughs> this is where his family gets into the court, right. is through Fox. Fox also used Paulet when he was defending his rights to appoint Burgesses in Bath and Wells. This was interesting. So the city leaders had chosen their own Burgesses to represent them. This means that their representative, their representatives in Parliament would be drawn from this group. Right. But 
that was a long-standing right of the bishop. Fox wanted that back. He was also demanding that the people there only use his mills to grind the flour. He had rights that everybody in that bishopric was to use the bishop's mills and pay for that right. The mm-hmm. city itself had created their own, and people were using them to mill the grain because it was less expensive. Yeah, town mm. was in trouble. Comes across as greedy, but this was a right that the bishop had held for centuries. So you can see people not wanting to give up their rights. Yeah. But if he'd put the price down, he could yes. have he could have won by a simple matter of rather than of, forcing of commerce. Them to shut down. Mm. Yeah. Instead he's nasty. In the end, your Sir Reginald Bray ended up having to mediate this dispute. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm. I didn't come across that, but then he was a busy boy as well. They were all so busy. (laughs) Yeah. Things with Perkin and Charles VIII were coming to a head. Henry was planning an invasion to punish Charles for the annexation of Brittany and for his support of Perkin. Fox was charged with collecting a benevolence, money, Mm -hmm. from the clergy to fund the invasion. It's a minor thing, but a correction in history that I would really like to make There is a comment that's attributed to Cardinal Morton, but from a few more current historians, this statement is now known as Morton's Fork. Oh, yeah. 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 Not Morton? No, it's a quote from Fox. If you go back to the original sources, he's the one that said it. I'm not sure how it ended up with Cardinal Morton. Mm. Well, perhaps Fox's Fork was just too difficult to say. (laughs) Fox's Fork. It really does show us that no one could win with his way of using logic. Mm. As the churchmen come to Fox with excuses as to why they could not provide the benevolence, those that were richly dressed were basically told that they were advertising their wealth, so they obviously had the ability to pay. And those that were (laughs) dressed simply or poorly were hoarding their wealth, so they could still pay. And we should say (laughs) a benevolence is a... Voluntary tax, and it's got, yes. another, it's got another name. I can't remember what it is now. Something like a, a loving tax, I think it is. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> no. It's, it's voluntary, but you damn well pay up. <laughs> yes, Fox did not let anyone off the hook mm. or off the fork. Yeah. Oh, goodness. But it's been Morton's fork forever. Yeah, well, it's... um. What is it? A century later, it gets termed Morton's Fork. Oh, right. But it was misquoted. Mm. As the money was coming in, it was Fox's task to assemble the army, the supplies, and the transport. A churchman. A bishop. Yeah, it is odd. We found this with Lovell as well. Yes. That he had no experience in any of this. No. And you're supposed to be peaceful. Yeah, people people are just told, go on, run along and sort this out. And they've just been going off thinking, why me? I've, I don't know how to do this. Does anybody know how to do this? Okay, who's around me? What mm. can I use? <laughs> There's a, some wheat. I've yeah, got I wheat. Now we're, we <laughs> we expect people to be trained for things, don't yes. we? Yes, but yes, we do. you learn on the job. Yes. Maybe it's better. Before anything or anyone could set sail from England, Fox was dispatched to Charles to sign a treaty for an annuity. 
He then returned to finish preparations. We won't go farther into this right now. It seems to be more appropriate to Charles VIII's episode for Battle Royale to cover, because a lot of the reason we don't see the invasion is because of Charles. So it should be covered by his point of view, I think. We're doing him as well, but... Yes. So we shall see. Yes. And here is where we're going to stop. The next bit is a bit more into Bishop Fox getting more and more into education and diplomacy, but it's a different feel Mm. of him. So I decided to end it Mm. here for today. And yes, Fox is going to be three episodes if anybody's (laughs) wondering. And we're already at over an hour. But that's the first episode. The next ones are going to be quite a bit longer. Right. But I had to find a place to stop it. Some eye-openers there. I mean, I Mm -hmm. had no idea about James III and Elizabeth Elizabeth Woodville. Neither did I. I came across, I'm like, no way. So I went and looked. Sure enough. Mm. For some reason, it gets glossed over, I guess, because it never happened. But wow, I'm you're going to marry and... off your mother-in-law. Yeah, I'm going to go and listen to Rex Factor's James III now and <laughs> see, they... see if they mentioned I don't... it. I don't recall. I don't remember them mentioning it. Mm. Otherwise, I would have linked the two. Mm. Ooh, I wonder if they mentioned it in the Elizabeth Woodville episode, because they did the Queens of England. I haven't listened to that. I've been so I've busy. Got, I have. I've got listened. a bit behind. I listened to Catherine of Aragon, but I that's jumped, as far as I got. Bit. I jumped a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I only yeah. got to Catherine of Aragon, and then we sort of took off here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was fascinating. Mm. I, and the good thing is, I know what he looks like, so I've got this image of this yes. gaunt, gaunt man in my head. Yes. Yes, and that was deliberate. He was an ascetic. Mm. Only as much food as you have to have, only as much. Well, the clothing is different. He had to keep up the pretense or the appearance. So ride a mule, but wear wonderful clothing. Mm. Because if you don't, you're not actually considered to be filling out the role properly, which still seems so odd. I love that our current Pope does not dress as gaudily and as fancily as some of the Popes do. We came across a cardinal who dressed down, and yes. the Pope, I think Innocent VIII, yes, got in touch actually with told him, him and said, put your proper clothes on. You're letting yes. side down. Yeah. Yes. Um, also, another, was it a bishop? It was in Isabella's episode that Alexander, Pope Alexander VI, Borgia, told mm. them they had to dress up. And he, f- he lost that battle because Isabel took the side of her bishops. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have to wear wonderful clothing. It was just expected. If you didn't keep up the pomp and circumstance, you weren't doing the job properly. People weren't in awe of you. I think people still feel like that. I'm just thinking way back, there was a leader of the opposition, Michael Foote, and he was vilified for wearing a donkey jacket to the cenotaph for the Remembrance Day. Okay, and... I'm going to have to look up what a donkey jacket is. Oh, right, honest, it's... I... It's pretty sure you don't mean something with like little ears on the top no, no, of no, my no, shirt. No. <laughs> it's just you know a nice warm jacket because you know, Remembrance Day is in November, so you need to be keep warm. But um, yeah, he was dragged through the through the tabloid papers because of this jacket, oh. and they still felt you know you have to dress up properly <laughs> because you are the leader of the opposition. Okay. Yeah. So nothing's changed. 
No. Mm. I think of Macron spending, what's it, 10,000 um, 10, euros a month on his hairdresser. <laughs> Jeez. That's the French president. <laughs> How do you spend that much money on hair? Especially since his hair is just sort of combed back. There's nothing to it. There's not a lot of hair. Just normal amount of hair. It's it's not as if he's he's having to be put in papers every night or anything. Wow, that's insane. Hmm. He's always on call. The hairdresser is always there in case that oh my suddenly need a hairdresser. Really? Yeah. Oh wow. So I'm not... so glad I'm not in the public eye. You guys can't see me, so I can wear whatever I want. My hair doesn't even have to be done up nice. It just gets brushed in the morning and off I go. <laughs> mm. Well, yeah, I can't even claim that really. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, bang on on this. Oh, no, you're a bit bit behind. Oh, goodness. I have a quiz to do. (laughs) You have. Mm. Okay, but anyway, let's get started. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to do the quiz.